gospel bring you to life. We do appreciate mothers. I appreciate my mother. And uh, my mother was a survivor. Well, is. Uh, and uh, dad left at an early age, and, and she had uh, never worked a day in her life. And uh, was a housewife and got a job at the mall selling clothes and did whatever she had to do to feed her kids. And uh, I think that's probably where I got uh, some of my uh, persevering sort of attitude. And uh, so I am, I am so thankful for my dear mother. And we're thankful for you mothers. Happy Mother's Day once again. Uh, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting at verse 16, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. You got a couple of Heisels in here, a couple of more Heisels. How you doing, Heisels? I like a house of Heisels. I have no idea what that means. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Last week, we re-engaged our sermon series through the book of Acts, after taking a break for Easter, we focused on the mission of Paul in Berea, where he preached the gospel in the synagogue, and many Jews and Gentiles were saved. Glory to God there. The angry, ignoble Jews of Thessalonica heard that Paul was in Berea. Paul had preached there in Thessalonica too. A bunch of trouble broke out, and these troublemaking Jews heard that uh, there was a little revival going on down in Berea, and they made their way down to Berea from Thessalonica to stir up some trouble, to cause a problem, to uh, maybe hopefully to have Paul ejected from that city too and to have the gospel brought to some sort of end. But before they arrived, Paul was whisked away by some of the new brothers, and Silas and Timothy remained in the city, and they stayed there to, to help grow the church and to continue to preach the gospel, maybe in a little bit of a covert way, trying to stay under the radar of those vicious and malicious Jews, but they stayed behind. And Paul and his escorts, he had some of the brothers from this new church in Berea that had been planted. He had some of these guys take him uh, down into Achaia, uh, which we would think of as uh, southern Greece, and he went into Athens, and then he told his escorts to return to Berea and to send Silas and Timothy back to him or down to him in Athens. And so we left off where he's actually waiting in Athens for their arrival. Let me pray one more time. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. You want to speak to us today, Lord, about idols? And I pray that you would speak clearly, Lord, right to our hearts. And that you would change us, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the name of Jesus Christ. Speak to us. May we hear. May we understand. May we be changed. May we obey. May we serve. We lift this up, time up to you, Jesus, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in 16. Chapter 17, verse 16. If you're new here today or unfamiliar, we just sort of work our way through a biblical text line by line, word for word. And uh, that's just kind of the way we roll here. We've been in Acts for, I don't know how long now, 
two and a half years, almost as long as we've been a church. So, anyways, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, there it is. He's chilling, waiting for them. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. A little background on where he's at before we get into that. Achaia was originally the name for a relatively small amount of territory in southern Greece. Its major cities were Corinth. We've, some of you have probably read the book of Corinthians. You see that, chapter 1, or book 1 and book 2 in the, the New Testament. Major cities there were Corinth, Athens, and Sparta. You think of the movie 300. Those were the major cities there in Achaia or southern Greece. Achaia was designated as a Roman senatorial province whose governors were known as proconsuls. You'll see that word proconsul uh, in relation, in scripture, in relation to Greek colonies and these things, Roman colonized places, Greco-Roman, if you will. Before taking a back seat to Corinth, however, Athens had been the political and commercial center of Achaia. This was the city. This was the New York, if you will. This was the Seattle. It was the primary city in commerce and in just about every conceivable way. But at some point, it took a back seat to Corinth. In its heyday, several centuries before Christ came, Athens had been the greatest city in the world. The greatest city in the world. Socrates, his brilliant student Plato and Plato's student Aristotle, perhaps the greatest, most influential philosopher of all time, taught there in Athens. In Paul's day, uh, the two dominating philosophies in Greek culture were Epicureanism and Stoicism. Epicureanism was founded by Epicurus, And Stoicism was founded by a guy named Zeno. Both of these well-known philosophers also taught in Athens. Athens would have been sort of the hub for ancient philosophy and what they thought was modern philosophy in their day. Now, Athens may have taken a backseat to Corinth in some ways in commerce and politically, but it had lost none of its cultural significance. It remained the philosophical center of the ancient world. Athens was home to the world's most famous university, and it was the religious center where almost every god in existence was worshipped. Athens featured the famous temple of Zeus, which took about 600 years to build. Every public building was dedicated to a god, And statues of gods filled the city. Pliny, a historian, recorded that there were no fewer than 73,000 statues in Athens. The writer Petronius, Petronius sarcastically quipped that it was, quote, easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Yeah. Ultimately, the city of Athens was steeped in pagan idolatry in an unprecedented way. There was no other city like it at this level of idolatry. 
And this had a profound effect on the Apostle Paul when he came into the city. To come into a city and to see 73,000 plus statues and all of this idolatry and these houses of worship had a profound, a deeply profound effect on the Apostle Paul when he entered the city. Our text says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Spirit here is a reference to Paul's emotional being. It's not the Holy Spirit. His emotional being, we would call this the heart. Paul was provoked in his heart as he looked upon all the idols and walked the streets and was just literally blown away. Provoked is parakzuzo in Greek, which means to be provoked to anger, to be made angry. Verse 16 basically says that Paul became deeply angered in his heart at the sight of all the idolatry around him. That would be a very accurate English translation of the Greek text. Luke actually used the same Greek noun, paroxuzo, when he described the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15.39. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with one another uh, about bringing John Mark on their journey. Barnabas wanted to bring him. Paul didn't because he had abandoned them earlier. They disagreed with one another so sharply that they became paroxuzo, provoked to anger. They were actually angered towards one another. Paul hated, absolutely hated, with the absolute highest level of fervency, he hated idolatry because he understood that it robs God of his glory as he penned in Romans 1.23. The 19th century missionary Henry Martin expressed what Paul may have felt in a bit of a commentary, if you will, on this verse. While discussing the gospel with a Muslim, a Muslim man, the Muslim man began to boast about Prince Abbas Mirza's victories over the Russians. He recited an old Muslim tale which says, Mirza killed so many Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven, took hold of Mohammed's cloak to entreat him to desist. Hearing this, Martin's countenance dropped, and the Muslim said, why are you upset? Martin replied, I would rather be dead than to listen to Christ be dishonored this way, for I am one with him, and that is why I am dreadfully wounded. When Paul looked to the left, when Paul looked to the right, when he looked out in front, when he looked behind, all he saw were idols. And he became deeply offended and angered, just as Henry Martin did when he heard the blasphemous words of that Muslim man. Paul became very zealous for God. He was a zealous man, but he became very zealous for God in this particular moment. And he took his anger, and then he did something that's almost impossible for me at times and probably hard for you at times. He channeled this anger into right action. 
He channeled his anger into right anger or right action. He took his anger, as powerful as it might have been, and channeled it into the very thing that he knew could bring real and lasting change, which is the gospel. When we look at our culture, like Paul, we can see that it is filled with idolatry. There are all sorts of little gods in America. Probably the primary one would be the God of self. Nobody's higher than me. Nobody's most, more important than me. Nobody's greater than I. Nobody's more deserving than I. Self is a tremendous idol god in our culture. We've got the god of money. We would have the god of consumerism, the god of sex, the god of drugs, the god of booze, the god of abortion, the god of government. Believe it or not, some people believe that Obama is the Messiah. Some people believe that Bush was the Messiah. Some people believe that all the answers are in the government, that the government is actually the savior in a sense. It is a, a god, if you will, and so on and so forth. And our zeal against these little gods should be channeled into preaching the gospel, which is the only thing that can bring the idols down and set idolatrous people free. If the little gods in our culture anger you, and I know they do because I have a Facebook page and I have a Twitter page and I watch people write endlessly about politics and Obama and Bush, the Antichrist, and these sorts of things, and, and you might be you, and it tends to be me at times, I get caught up in these things, but if you do despise and you are angered by these various forms of idolatry in our culture, preach the gospel to the culture. If you are angered by the idolatry that tends to rise up in ourselves because we're all plagued by it at times. Preach the gospel to yourself. You see, the, only the gospel has the power to bring these little gods down and release us from bondage. And you must know that misplaced zeal can and does damage the reputation of the church and cause of Christ. We must learn to channel our emotions into Right action, which is the spreading of the gospel. And I would say this to me as well. Don't pour our zeal for God into publicizing anti-Obama or anti-Bush, whichever side of the political thing you're on. Don't put your zeal as a Christian into that anti-this person, that person, or whatever propaganda on social media and political sites. This is a waste of good zeal. It's a waste of good energy that should be poured into something of higher value. Don't pour your zeal into debating people on the most popular cultural issues. Have you ever noticed just how you go round and round with people? This is a waste of, of good zeal. Don't, don't Pour your, and this is one that us pastors have to be mindful, don't pour your zeal for God into arguing the finer points of theology with other believers. Man, I, I tell you, some guys just spend their whole lives doing that. I get on these benders where I do that for weeks at a time and realize I haven't mentioned the gospel one time. 
This too is a waste of good zeal just to be engaged in endless debate. We should follow Paul's example, which we're about to see in verse 17, by pouring our zeal into spreading the gospel. This is what he did. Look at 17 with me. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. I love this verse and I hate this verse. It really challenged me because of how much time and zeal and energy I pour into other things and other avenues. This verse can be a bit shocking to us that get kind of caught up in these things. Paul, again, became provoked, angered by all the idolatry in his spirit. And then what does he do? He goes to the local synagogue to reason with those who were there. Probably did this on the following Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue filled with this righteous indignation, this anger, and he actually proclaimed the gospel. And he did it in the same way that he did it in Thessalonica. He reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He spoke with Jews and devout persons, which would be God-fearers, like Gentile Jewish converts, if you will. He also presented Christ in the world-famous Athenian Agora, or marketplace, to people who were there. Luke didn't record the reaction of the Jews of Athens to Paul's preaching. That's one thing we notice about this text, as he did in Thessalonica and other places. His narrative focuses instead on his teaching, on Paul's teaching in front of Greek audiences in the Agora, which eventually results in an invitation to appear before the Areopagus Council. Looking south across the Agora, Paul would have seen a, a large number of temples with their cult images and altars to Zeus and to Athena, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, and so on, dozens and dozens more than likely. These temples were built near the Agora to bolster tourism and evangelism. Tourism, usually uh, tourists actually per se, actually went to the Agora, which we might think of as the mall, because it was superior to all other malls in all other cities. This was a mall that had a farmer's market in it, it had a Neiman Marcus in it, it had the Gilroy outlets in it, it had it all in it. It had judicial buildings. There were all kinds of things that took place. This marketplace was massive. You can go online and look at ruins of it. It was pretty impressive. Tourists would actually go to this place. How many of you have gone to a major city and you just happened to wander into the shopping district? Nobody in this room has done that. Are you kidding me? Am I the only dummy in here that does that? I mean, we do it, you know? When you go to Carmel, it's not a major city, but you can't help it. The whole city is the shopping district. You just walk up and down that road, and coach is going, come to me, come to me, come to me. And the ladies are going, I am, I am, I am. The husband's going, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. You've never visited a city or a large place and checked out the shopping district? Yeah, it's something that we do. It makes sense. Lily's like, amen, brother, preach it. You're going to have a baby soon, so once you have that baby, you're going to be hooking that baby up too. And this is what tourists did in this community. Uh, when they came to Athens, they went to the shopping district. And just think of, of the imagery there that you have this. What a, what a strange brew, right, of market and shopping and, and fresh fruit and then fine linens and all these things. And then all of these temples in a row. Like, pick your God. They were really marketing 
the Greeks were marketing their religion and gods in the marketplace. Uh, the Greeks were, were no dummies. And I'm fairly certain that many, many, many tourists came in and visited those temples and were probably converted in a sense. When Paul looked out, this is what he saw. These temples and marketplace filled with people. The Agora was the perfect place to show off and market the most important Greek gods. While at the Agora, Paul made his way into uh, what is called the painted stoa. Stoas were a common feature in Greek cities and sanctuaries. Open at the front with a, uh, a facade of columns. A stoa provided an open but protected space. When you think of a stoa, think of a building that, you know, has three walls and then the front is open, but it has an overhang and all these columns in front of it. That's what a stoa is. Stoas were very prevalent in Greek cities. Uh, they provided a, a good protective space for different sorts of things. Uh, space for, you know, different activities for the civil magistrates or maybe shopkeepers and others, sometimes for religious things. Stoas were often used as galleries for fine art and for or as public monuments. In the 5th century BC, the Athenian Agora had four, possibly five, stoas that lined the southern, western, and northern sides of this agora or public area. The painted stoa had been built in 460 B.C. It was decorated with a series of paintings representing famous battles, including both legendary and historical events involving Athenians. It became the popular public meeting place used by philosophers. They would gather there in this painted stoa and, and present their ideas and, and engage in rhetoric and engage in debate. Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, I mentioned him, used the painted stoa to meet with and train his own disciples, those who followed his philosophical ideas and thoughts. This was a place that Paul went into. How bold. To go into a foreign synagogue, that's bold. To go into a marketplace where there are seemingly thousands of people in every religion known to man, that's incredibly bold, and to speak openly the gospel. To go into the painted stoa where you're going to be met by philosophers that can, who can usually and generally out-talk you and out-speak you and out-eloquent you, out-debate you. Superior at or uh, oration, is that the word? Oratory skills were beyond the... Levels of most people. I mean, they just, this is where Paul went into to preach the gospel in the Agora. Just always astonished by his boldness and willingness to proclaim the gospel. Let's look at 18. Here's how we see he went in there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. These guys hung out in the painted stoa. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. I put in dummy right there. What a dummy he is. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, the text says. 
While preaching the gospel at the painted Stoa, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged Paul. Well, let's talk about Epicureanism and Stoicism for a moment so we can better understand what was actually going on here. Have you heard of these two philosophical streams of thought, Epicureanism and Stoicism? These were the primary ones in, in this day. Epicurean philosophy taught that now this is going to, here's what's amazing about these two philosophies, especially Epicureanism is this striking parallels to American culture and American thought. Epicurean philosophy taught that pleasure and the avoidance of pain are the chief end of man. Isn't that the guiding philosophy of America, of most Americans? Being pain-free and being pleasured is no doubt the highest goal of our society, of our culture. In juxtaposition to this, you have the biblical chief end of man as expressed in the first point of the Westminster Catechism, which is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Could you get any more antithetical to the Epicurean driving line? Epicureans were also materialists. So are Americans. Americans define themselves by what they have, by what they own. Epicureans did not deny the existence of the gods. Remember, Greco-Roman society, many gods. But they did not believe that the gods intervene in human affairs. They had this weird transcendent view that the gods are, the gods are out in their own place, having a good time, having a lot of happy times. My Little Pony, Lollipop Times, and they don't interfere with human affairs because they're just too depressing to have anything to do with. This is Epicurean philosophy, as silly as it might sound. They got gods, but they're far removed from their creation. They believe that when a person dies, his or her body and soul simply disintegrate. This, too, is a common belief amongst Americans some of our religions here that teach annihilationism. And some teach that there is a God, but he's far disconnected from all that's happening. He created it and has just let it go, so to speak. Those are common beliefs here. Epicurean philosophy is without a doubt one of the guiding and prevailing philosophies in this nation. It permeates every aspect of our culture, including religion. There are strong Epicurean traits in Pentecostalism. The idea of getting from God, the idea of avoiding trouble, and the more faith you have, the less trouble you'll have, and these sorts of things. Now let's talk about Stoicism for a second. Stoicism was the exact opposite or antithesis to Epicureanism. Literally. You, you couldn't get more opposite than Stoicism from Epicureanism. It was the antithesis to it. Stoicism focused on self-mastery, not just living it up. The chief end of Stoicism was to eradicate all feelings and to reach a place of indifference to pleasure and pain. In other words, the chief end of Stoicism was to become like data on Star Trek, New Generation, without emotion. Unless you've seen that episode where he got the emotion chip. I love that one because he goes completely ballistic. Maybe there's no Star Trek Next Generation fans in here. Maybe I'm one of three nerds in the room. I don't know. I love that show. But that would be like a good representation of what it is. It is to become without emotion, to flush 
all emotion. You're not happy, you're not sad, you're stoic, you're a rock. And then a juxtaposition to that would be the Epicureanism, which is live it up. No pain, all pleasure, it's all about me. Two completely opposite competing philosophies. You've heard the phrase, you've heard people say this of this guy or that gal. He shows no emotion in those situations. He's very stoic. She's very stoic. He's very stoic. This is where it comes from. So we have these two competing philosophies in Athens. You've got the feel-gooders on one side, and you've got the feel-nothingers on the other. That'd be the best way to look at it. And members from both sides here, right, the feel-gooders and the feel-nothingers, here they are together conversing with Paul in the painted stone. Now, this is incredibly interesting because these two groups did not get along. You can't have the feel-gooders and the feel-nothingers together. There's friction, there's trouble, there's strife, there's endless debate, there's you guys are all about pleasure. Well, you guys don't feel anything. You're a bunch of sociopaths. You've got that kind of dynamic and thing going on there. They didn't get along, but yet, this is interesting because in the text we see them both together conversing with Paul as if they have joined teams. In a similar way, they had become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jerusalem who hated each other because of theological differences. The Pharisees and Sadducees, however, put aside their theological differences to unite against Jesus. The Epicureans and Stoics put aside their philosophical differences to unite against Paul, is what we're seeing here. Paul was actually experiencing what Jesus experienced throughout the duration of his ministry. And Paul loved this. We don't love it when two forces join against us and and come at us, do we? Oh, run. Stop saying those things. Stop the gospel for a moment. We don't like it when these things happen, but Paul actually really enjoyed it, uh, and he wasn't twisted by any means. Philippians 3, 10 to 11, he wrote this, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul was perfectly fine with suffering as Jesus suffered being condemned as Jesus was condemned, being questioned, being rebuked, being insulted. He was perfectly fine with being put to death as Jesus had been put to death. Why? Because he knew someday he would experience the power of Christ in his own resurrection, new glorious body. When these philosophers came at him, they ridiculed him. And he didn't shrink back or cower. Look at how they insulted him. They called him a babbler. We might not think that that's a very serious phrase or term or title, but it is. It is spermalagos in Greek. Spermalagos, kind of a hard word to say. Spermalagos in Greek. And it means scavenger. Scavenger, it paints a picture of a bird that kind of flies down out of the sky or out of a tree and just plops around on the ground plucking up seeds. 
The philosopher said Paul was like one who goes around and picks up bits and pieces of useless information and then he forms his own hypothesis and then he attempts to pass it off as profundity with no depth of understanding. That's what it means to be a babbler. This guy's going around picking up ideas from all sorts of people that don't make any sense. What an idiot he is. Look at him. And now he's trying to force his hypothesis on us. He's trying to make it sound profound with this Jesus and resurrection thing. What a nimbus. You could also translate Spermalagos as an ignorant show-off. So they were calling him a scavenger. They were calling him an ignorant show-off. And this is what, the way that many educated folks in our day and age respond to the gospel. Those with more degrees than Fahrenheit, like Richard Dawkins and Bill Nye, scoff, ridicule, and sneer at Christ and those who proclaim him. They think we're completely stupid. Babblers. The Bible says that the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are steeped in religion and foolishness to those who are steeped in intellectual pursuits. This is a classic case of that in verse 18. You have the educated philosophers who are scoffing and ridiculing Paul, calling him an ignorant scavenger. The text says that Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection. There's the gospel. And when some of those present heard that part of his message, they exclaimed this, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. The philosophers may have felt that Paul was seeking to subvert their whole system of religion or idolatry and establish Christianity in its place, which is exactly what Paul was attempting to do. This could be why they interrupted him and, and tried to debate him and, and, and then eventually, we see, brought him before the Areopagus. Josephus wrote this, he wrote, he was a historian as well, he wrote, the Athenians severely punished those who initiated people into the mystery, uh, mysteries pardon me, of foreign gods. This was forbidden by their law and the penalty decreed for any who introduced a foreign god was death. Socrates was condemned and put to death by the Areopagus several centuries earlier for allegedly corrupting the youth and introducing alien deities without proper authorization. Now look at 19 to 21. Here's how these philosophers responded to Paul and his preaching. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange thing to our ears. Continue. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Areopagus was a court Think of a court with judges. It was a court named for the hill on which it once met. It was the seat of the ancient and venerable supreme court of Athens, the high court. It was composed entirely of ex-chief magistrates, proconsuls, if you will, who were wise, supposedly or allegedly wise, blameless in character, and just in their decisions. 
Their numbers and authority varied greatly from age to age. They held their sessions by night. They took cognizance of murders, impieties, and immoralities, punished vices of all kinds, idleness included, rewarded or assisted the virtuous, and were strangely attentive to blasphemies against the gods. When Paul and the philosophers arrived at the Areopagus, uh, the philosophers asked Paul to explain his beliefs before these uh, Areopagites or ex-magistrates, before the judges. Now they do not, at this point, point. this is interesting, they do not appear to be alarmed, but actually curious and inquisitive. Okay, we've seen Paul get drugged before others, and we've seen Paul get, or uh, Peter and John get drugged before the Sanhedrin with much more uh, fervency and anger and hostility towards them. That's not what's playing out here. This is sort of casual. No doubt that the philosophers back at the painted stoa were alarmed by what Paul was saying, but they weren't angered in any sense or thought that they had to bring some sort of justice or retribution. They're actually curious and being a bit inquisitive about his teachings. They want to know what he means. They want to know the deeper doctrines of his beliefs, if you will. They considered Paul's teachings strange and out of the ordinary. The text does not state or imply that this was some sort of trial. It was, as I mentioned, some sort of informal meeting where Paul could expound his thoughts in greater depth. The philosophers and the Areopagus uh, leaders, judges, may have considered, now this is where it gets really interesting, they may have considered integrating Paul's deity and beliefs into the Greek system of religion. And this would be the reason why they weren't alarmed. They were intrigued. What is he saying? Is this something that we could utilize or plug into our system of belief? Is this something that might bring in more tithe dollars or bring more happiness to our people. And they actually had a protocol for this in place, Greek culture did, the Greek leaders. In both classical and Hellenistic times, the introduction of foreign cults and rites required, uh, required the official authorization of the state. An Athenian decree stipulated this, the king magistrate shall fix the boundaries of the sanctuaries and sacred precincts, and in the future no one shall found altars, cut the stones, or take out the earth or stones without authorization of the council. If a person desired to introduce a new deity, right, if somebody just cooked up a new god and it made sense and it was beneficial, he or she was required to explain their doctrine, their system of beliefs, their God to the Areopagus. Isn't that fascinating? You starting to see the parallel with what they're doing with Paul? The Areopagus would then ascertain the novelty of the cult, the desirability of allowing the cult. Is this something that would really take root? Would people believe these things? And the requirements of the cult, such as the need for a temple, an altar, sacrifices, festivals, priests, 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 and processions. If the Areopagus approved of the new cult or deity, they would record the name of the person who made the motion, who came up with the idea, and then give him and his followers, if he had them at that moment, a parcel of land to be developed for that deity. A great example of this is when the Scythians came to Athens, they desired to build a temple for Aphrodite. Uh, 
They went through this process and the Areopagus approved them. The philosophers may have thought that Paul was simply trying to introduce a new deity like the Scythians had done. And that is why they took him before the Areopagus. It could be said that they were attempting to put Paul through the correct protocol and process for entering a new deity into their system of beliefs. The strange teachings of Paul might have been on the verge or the precipice, if you will, of becoming the newest religious fad or the next biggest, best religious thing in Athens. Crazy. And many many, many today do this when they hear the gospel. They respond just like the philosophers. They hear about Jesus. They get excited. And then they attempt to add him or some of his teachings to their pre-existing beliefs. They hear the gospel. They assess whether it will be beneficial or profitable to them. And then they try to designate a parcel of who they are or a parcel or section of their beliefs to the Lord. But we must all understand that Jesus is not interested in part or parcel. You see, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. You can't give him a section. You can't give him a parcel. You can't add him. Whenever Jesus made this lucidly clear to those who followed him, many who were following him abandoned him and turned to their gods. Well, that's enough for me. I, I, I was simply trying to add some of your philosophical or theological teachings to my system of belief or to my cadre of gods. And now that you're saying it's all exclusive with you, I'm not interested. I'm not going to commit myself only to you, Jesus. I've got other gods to tend to. Primarily myself. You see, that's the thing about the gospel. That's the thing about Christianity. It is exclusively about Jesus. We might boil that down by saying this. He's it. And he requires our full devotion, full commitment. In order to have Jesus and true salvation, one must be willing to cast down all idols, all traditions, all works, all religion. This was a completely foreign concept in Athens. There was no one God in the Greek system of religion that deserved a person's full love, full devotion, full worship, full obedience, or full service. Not in that system. And this is precisely what Paul is going to preach. Now Luke, Luke literally points to the impossibility of divine singularity at the end of verse 21. Look at it with me. Actually, let's look at the whole verse of 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. These people were constantly on the hunt for a new God, a new religion, maybe a new philosophy. They spent all their time in pursuit of something new, just as Americans do. We are the same as them. 
Reminds me of my, with all due respect to her, my oldest sister whom I love dearly, who spent a, she's not older than me, but she's my oldest of the two sisters. I'm the Methuselah of the family. And this whole idea of something new and jumping from thing to thing to thing and looking for the next fad completely reminds me of a season. And I don't know if she's doing with this, dealing with this now, but at one time she was literally jumping from Buddhism to thisism to thatism to thisism. If there had been a superstore for religion with, you know, Wheaties instead of Wheaties on the shelf and Apple Jacks and these things, and each box was a religion. She, was, she would have been purchasing these religions or buying them and adding them to her life. She is a very confused woman. When I speak to her about Jesus, she says, how dare you talk about Jesus in that exclusive way? How dare you say that other religions are not valid? How dare you say that the only way to heaven, the only way to God, if there is one, how dare you say that it's only through Jesus? How offensive you are to me and to others who believe other things. Don't you understand, Phil, that there are many paths? Well, she's very confused. She actually used to get offended at me when I would imply that Jesus is it or say very clearly that Jesus is it. She can't stand that truth. She hates that truth. She is, in the most radical sense, Athenian, a polytheist. She is a polytheist. And that's precisely what is playing out where Paul is standing at this moment. He is before judges who rule over a community of polytheists. And who are dead set on hearing new things, gossiping new things, integrating new things. This is where he's standing. In closing... would say this, Jesus testified to his own exclusiveness. You see, when I talk to my sister about the gospel, when I talk to her about Jesus, I'm not making things up. I'm not coming up with my own ideas or what I think is right or what I prefer. To be honest with you, in my flesh, there is no greater God at times than myself. I am a polytheist in a way. We all are. Don't we all wrestle with the God of self? I'm not saying I approve of that or appreciate it or like it or want to foster and cultivate that. I want it to die. I say kill it. Then I realize he'd probably have to kill me completely and just bring me to himself. So don't do that yet. And your timing. Hopefully it's later. You see, when I talk to my sister about Jesus, I, I, I give her scripture. I give her the Bible. I give her Jesus' own testimony about himself. In John 14, 6, he said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You really can't get any more exclusive than that statement by our Lord. It's concise. 
perfectly stated. You can't get more, any more plain than that. It's pretty black and white. And this would be the question to all of us. Is this what we believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and the only path to the Father who is in heaven? If you do not, I implore you. In fact, God commands you to turn away from your idols and your polytheism, to repent of believing that you can be saved by some other means or by some other person or by some sort of conglomeration of thoughts and beliefs and things. You must, I implore you, God commands it, we'll see that in our next section, to repent of believing that and to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. For he alone can save. For he alone can save. I implore you to forsake your idols, to forsake your self-reliance, to forsake your rebellion and sin and to turn to Christ. You must know that Athenian, Greek, whatever you want to call it, religion won't save you. Epicureanism won't save you. Stoicism won't save you. All of your good works... You might be a good person in your own mind, do a lot of great things for people. You know, you're benevolent. You're a good-hearted person in a sense, and you do a lot of great things for people. But all of those things done apart from faith, Isaiah 64, 6 says, are nothing but filthy rags before God. Why? Because you're not doing what you do because you love God, and that's first and primary. Jesus alone can save you. Repent and believe in him. Don't try to add him to your life. Die and be reborn in him. Paul believed in the exclusiveness of Jesus. This is why he labored the way he did. This is why he suffered the way he did. It's not offensive to proclaim many gods. It's offensive to say that it's all about Jesus. That's what triggers people's pride and their beliefs. This is why Paul, because of the exclusiveness of Jesus, this is why he got angry in Athens. All of that worship being offered down to rocks, sticks, and man-made images instead of being offered up to Christ, who alone is worthy and forever enthroned in glory. Does idolatry anger you, Christian? Does it anger you when you yourself turn to lesser things? Does that frustrate you? Does it anger you that our culture bows to a million different idols? Does it anger you that Satan has the vast majority of people deceived and on the broad road to destruction? Does it anger you that countless people will suffer a Christless eternity? Does me. The Lord desires for us to take our anger and channel it into right action. 
Don't pour your zeal into losing, lost, or non-eternal causes. Our time here is short. Our lives are like a vapor. We are here today and gone tomorrow. May we be like our brother Paul who channeled his zeal for righteousness for God into the proclamation of the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, to the Greek also. We need to be like Paul. You get angry. Take that anger and channel it into energy into the gospel, which is the power to save. Paul, I thought about this, you know, when Paul came into that city, he didn't start a campaign of breaking down all the statues. He'd have been busy, 72,000 plus. He'd have said, he'd have Popeye arms by the time he was done. I need another bat. He didn't get on those social media sites and vent all his anger and spew all that anger all over people who are lost in sin. He, he didn't attack federal buildings and blow up abortion clinics. See, sometimes that zeal starts out as a seed and it's a good, righteous indignation sort of seed. And what it does is it just... It, it takes over and then, and then we, we don't control it and pour it into right things like evangelism, the gospel, and, and, and we let it continue to build and, and our hearts become hard and we turn to attacking people, to violence and to these things. And that's not what Paul did. We should be like our brother Paul. And pour our zeal for righteousness into the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power to save to the Jew first and to the Greek. Amen. If the Lord permits it, we will return next Sunday and begin to examine Paul's incredible sermon in the Areopagus. It's a dynamite sermon. It really is. You won't want to miss it. I have a time of communion remind you that communion is for believers only. If you are not in Christ, if you have not repented of your sin and put your trust in him, you should sit this out. This is a time for believers to, to repent of sin, to confess sin to Christ, to remember the finished work of Christ, finished work of Jesus in that we're justified by faith. What he achieved for us at the cross is it. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation or anything like that at all. Simple faith is how we are justified and saved by believing that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose for our justification. Life abundance. We repent, confess of sin. We remember the finished work of Jesus, what those elements represent. His broken body is poured out blood for the remission of our sin. The new covenant, someday we will dine with him in heaven. It's going to be wonderful. We need to be refreshed by God's grace in this time. Maybe there's some idolatry that's going on in here. As you allow the Lord to search your heart before you take the elements, that you would just confess the various forms of idolatry. Maybe the big one for you is just a misappropriation, an application of your time. 
You're taking that zeal that God has given you and you are using it to fight for politics or you are using it to fight for some theological position or maybe you're using it to fight to be justified before people that you could be shown to be right. Who cares if you're right? Right? The whole point of our sanctification is to get us to a point where we don't really care what others think of us in terms of those things. I know what the scriptures say. I stick to that. You can call me a babbler. And some of us say, that's not good enough. You're never going to call me a babbler. I'll tell you what. I'll show you. Maybe that's what you need to confess. And I would say lastly, you're repenting, you're remembering, you're being refreshed by his grace. Lastly, commit yourself to obeying the word of God. The book of James says it so clearly that if we hear and do not do, we are deceived. Please put what you've learned today to action. Obey the scripture. Which means your life is probably going to look differently tomorrow, probably today, this afternoon when you get home. You'll be rethinking how you do things and what you put up and how you deal with people. Put the juice into the gospel, man. That's your call today. Father, thank you for this time of teaching and for this time of communion, Lord. May we remember, maybe we confess and our sin to you, Lord, and remember the finished work of Jesus. We're justified. Therefore, we can obey and please you and serve you. And may we be refreshed by your grace in this time. It's meant to refresh us, the taking of the elements, remembering what Christ did, relieving us of the burden of performance in these things. Lord, may we all commit ourselves to obeying the very word of God, the scriptures, what we've learned today. May we be like Paul. May we enjoy this time in your presence. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.